we are in the book of Esther. Rachel's going to come in a moment and just read for us Esther chapter 1, but uh, just want to introduce things first of all. So a new series, um, and uh, I think a series that's very appropriate um, for the season we're in as a nation with so much change going on, so much controversy among our politicians and stuff. I think it's appropriate um, that we, we, uh, we come to this book and hopefully things will unfold and I'm sure God is going to speak to us through his word as he always does. So there's an ancient, an ancient Persian inscription which reads, I am Xerxes, the great king, the king of the lands, where many languages are spoken, the king of the wide earth, far and wide. And that inscription was almost true. At least the king certainly believed it himself. And his vast empire stretched from India through to Egypt. Israel, Assyria, Babylon, Egypt had all been swallowed up by this vast empire. Only Greece still fiercely resisted his authority. So no one could ever doubt how powerful, how glorious, how wealthy this man was. And he wanted to make sure that everybody knew about it, of course. Which is why he would invite the princes of the 127 provinces to be dazzled by his splendor for six months at a time. And the whole extravaganza was just crowned by an unrestrained feasting in the most flagrant luxury. But... It is into this setting that the story of Esther begins. Now, you may be thinking, so what? And actually, it's probably a good question to pose, a question that we need to keep asking ourselves throughout this historic book of Esther. But before we go any further, let's hear Esther chapter 1. These events happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 120 provin- 127 provinces, stretching from India to Ethiopia. At that time, Xerxes ruled his empire from his royal throne at the fortress of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. He invited all the military officers of Persia and Media, as well as the princes and nobles of the provinces. The celebration lasted for 180 days. A tremendous display of the opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and splendor of his majesty. When it was all over, the king gave a banquet for all the people from the greatest to the least who were in the fortress of Susa. It lasted for seven days and was held in the courtyard of the palace garden. The courtyard was beautifully decorated with white cotton curtains and blue hangings which were fastened with white linen cords and purple ribbons to silver rings embedded in marble pillars. Gold and silver couches stood on a mosaic pavement of porphyry marble, mother of pearl and other costly stones. Drinks were served in gold goblets of many designs and there was an abundance of royal wine reflecting the king's generosity. By edict of the king, no limits were placed on the drinking, for the king had instructed all his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. At the same time, Queen Vashti gave a banquet... At the same time, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was in high spirits because of the wine, 
He told the seven eunuchs who attended him, Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Agtha, Zethar, and Carcass to bring Queen Vashti to him with the royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. But when they conveyed the king's order to Queen Vashti, she refused to come. This made the king furious, and he burned with anger. He immediately consulted with his wise advisers, who knew all the Persian laws and customs, for he always asked their advice. The names of these men were Karshina, Shethar, Admathar, Tarshish, Merez, Marcina, and Memucan, seven nobles of Persia and Media. They met with the king regularly and held the highest positions in the empire. What must be done to Queen Vashti, the king demanded. What penalty does the law provide for a queen who refuses to obey the king's orders properly sent through his eunuchs? Mimukin answered the king and his nobles, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king but also every noble and citizen throughout your empire. Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands when they learn that Queen Vashti has refused to appear before the king. Before this day is out, the wives of all the king's nobles throughout Persia and Media will hear what the queen did and will start treating their husbands the same way. There will be no end to their contempt and anger. So, if it please the king, we suggest that you issue a written decree, a law of the Persians and the Medes, that cannot be revoked. It should order that Queen Vashti be forever banished from the presence of King Xerxes, and that the king should choose another queen more worthy than she. When this decree is published throughout the king's vast empire, husbands everywhere, whatever their rank, will receive proper respect from their wives. The king and his nobles thought this made good sense, so he followed Mamukin's counsel. He sent letters to all parts of the empire, to each province in its own script and language, proclaiming that every man should be the ruler of his own home, and should say whatever he pleases. Thank you. So, who was Xerxes, this king of Persia? Well, his father was Darius the first. His, his grandfather was Cyrus the Great, and he came from this rather illustrious family. He ruled between 486 to 465 BC, and he had absolute control over the provinces of his vast empire. But Xerxes was a very, very proud man, and he loved to boast about one thing, himself. So, like most Eastern rulers, he loved to throw lavish banquets to impress his guests and, and to show off his wealth and his power. So in these first nine um, verses of, of chapter one alone, there are three banquets mentioned. The first was for key military and political officers of the empire, verses one to four. The second was for the men of Shushan, which was the site of the, the, the winter palace, verses five to eight. And the third then was for the women of Shushan, Verse 9, which was presided over by the queen, Queen Vashti. It's, it's probably unlikely that the king would bring all of his um, provincial rulers together at exactly the same time. It's probably much more likely that they would have come in some sort of rotating schedule. But when they did come, they would consult 
with the king and with one another. And then after that, there would be this sort of seven-day feast, this extravaganza would be thrown for each and every one of them. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us exactly the purpose of these banquets, but actually secular history does. The Greek historian Herodotus seems to be referring to these feasts, and he suggests that Xerxes was actually taking uh, or talking to his leaders about the possibility of invading Greece. You see, his father Darius had tried to invade Greece and had been shamefully defeated. So now his son felt compelled to avenge his father and to to extend his own empire at exactly the same time. And it would appear that Xerxes' plan was to invade all of Europe and then to create this one whole empire of the earth. So even when the king's uncle advises him very strongly to not to go along with this plan, the king persists and actually he successfully convinces his princes, his officers to follow him. So you see, the most important thing for Xerxes was that he impresses with his military, with his, his political leaders, he impresses them with his power, with his wealth. So the first thing, if you are a visitor coming to the palace of the king, the first thing you're going to see as you walk in, this impressive marble pillars, you see this gorgeous fabric just draping from these silver rings, and then just golden table surface is just excessively decadent, so impressive. Anyone has got to be impressed. So why would you not submit to, their, to the king? Being a proud man, he knows how to appeal to the pride in other people. In 480, it's actually, actually, unfortunately, with all of that, all this showy wealth really doesn't guarantee victory, unfortunately, because in 480, the, the navy is defeated at Salamis. One year later, the Persian army was defeated along with Xerxes' dreams of having this world domination. The word of Proverbs 16, verse 18, certainly ring true. Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. Now, of course, our technology has moved on a long way since the days of Xerxes. But people actually don't change that much. We still live in a world that has got this philosophy that's based on aggression. And if you want to get ahead, you fight for it. If you, if you want to get, get um, more power, you just fight for position. You fight for power. You fight everyone until you rise to the top. But listen, this is not God's way. This is not the biblical way. In fact, we see a very different example in the one who gives us the best example of all, of course, Jesus Christ. See, he is like a shining star against the blackness of the night sky. And Jesus proved that this aggressive way of thinking and behaving is wrong. Jesus never used a sword or even a weapon. And yet he won the greatest battle in all of world history. The battle against sin, against death, against hell. He defeated hatred with manifest love. He overcame lies with truth because he surrendered he became victorious. There is no greater king than King Jesus. And you need to learn the valuable lesson. If you want, if you are in a position of responsibility or authority, you need to remember that all authority comes from God and he alone is in complete control. 
Romans 13, 1. There is no authority except that which God has established. Goes on. The authority that exists has been established by God. So every man or woman who is in a place of responsibility needs to remember that they are only second in command. You're not the boss. There's only one boss. There's only one person who is in control because Jesus Christ is Lord of all. But back to our story. In those days, no one could argue with the king. At least no one who valued their position or their life. So however outrageous or unlawful his commands, they would just obey them without question. But when the king was drunk... You definitely didn't argue with him, especially a king who was determined to display his most splendid treasure to his reveling admirers. Regardless of the law of Persia, you see, no women were to be at these feasts. King doesn't care. Regardless of the law of common decency, king does not care because he has got no self-control. Ironically, it's his lack of self-control that will actually explain how Esther later becomes queen. So at the conclusion of this seven-day feast and after a shed load of wine, the king is in high spirits and he orders the queen to display her beauty for everybody to see. Vashti clearly has got different plans. And while she is queen, drunken men are not going to be gawping crudely at her, whatever the consequences, so she refuses to obey. But her response is a triple insult. She is a woman who has challenged the authority of a man. She's a wife who has disobeyed the order of her husband and a subject who has defied the command of the king. As a result, the king is absolutely furious. It's perhaps surprising that he even takes time to stop and inquire of his advisors, but there's no surprise in their advice. They have learned a long time ago to say the right thing at the right time to keep their king happy. One of the things that you will see throughout the book of Esther is a king who can control everything except for himself. He makes impetuous decisions, which he later regrets. And when he doesn't get his own way, he becomes angry. And yet at the same time, he is easily influenced by his advisors. He may have been the master of his empire, but he is certainly not master of himself. This was a man who lacked self-control in both temper, thirst, and character. And this is a tragic story of a destructive combination of alcohol and anger. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the Bible commands complete abstinence, but it does warn against drunkenness, which means you must drink in moderation. And if that's not possible, or you know that you've got some sort of addictive personality, I would suggest you avoid alcohol altogether. The best way to avoid drunkenness is probably not to drink. Japanese proverb warns, first the man takes a drink, then the drink takes a drink, then the drink takes the man. We must show self-control in every part of our life, our drinking habits, our sexual behavior, our temper. Had the king 
being sober, he would have never asked the queen to display herself before the crowd of partiers. But by now, his anger allows his pride to get the better of him. And, and, he, and he's concerned about how other people are going to think about him. After all, if he can't control his wife, how on earth is he going to be able to control the Persian army? So he's forced to do something to save both his ego and his reputation. And anger has got a way of blinding our eyes to the truth of what is right. This is how an Italian poet describes it. Angry men are blind and foolish, for reason at such times takes flight. And in her absence, wrath plunders all the riches of the intellect, while the judgment remains the prisoner of its own pride. In contrast, Proverbs 16.32 tells us, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. We need self-control in every part of our lives. Lest, like Xerxes, we become a victim and a prisoner to pride. Of course, there is a holy anger that, that should burn in the heart of a godly person. Romans 12, 9 reminds us, let love be genuine. Abhor, strong word, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. But we must be careful that our anger at sin does not become sinful anger. And to prevent this from happening, we must deal with the root problem of pride that can feed your anger. Otherwise, as anger grows, it be, it's only reinforces pride. So first of all, we must examine our, our own hearts with the help of the Holy Spirit before ever lashing out at somebody else. Because when you align and realign yourself with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, more often than not, you will realize that actually it's you that is being foolish. Unfortunately, Xerxes was too proud to do this. His ego was hurt. And when ego is hurting, it can release a powerful poison that can make people do horrible things that they would never normally do. However, as we've hinted already, alongside the pride of the king, he also makes another very critical mistake. He has surrounded himself with advisors who are simply yes men. They flatter the king in order to keep their position and to get what they want from him. Again, there is another lesson for us to learn. Be careful who you listen to and who you surround yourself with. See, if you only have friends who are going to tell you what you want to hear, who will flatter your pride, who are afraid to pull you up when you get it wrong, who, who don't care enough about you to, about your spiritual walk with Jesus to bring correction, perhaps you need to be finding some new friends. Bad friends will tell you what the advisors told the king. First of all, they exaggerated the importance of the event and, and they blow it out of, out of all proportions. And this is exactly what proud people, of course, want to hear. It's not your fault, king. Like, it's really, you know, you've done nothing wrong in this whole thing. It's not really your fault. It's all her. It's all about her. And then, of course, comes the exaggeration. Vashti has done wrong, not only to the king, but to the whole empire. In fact, and this is pure speculation, of course, all the guests have gone home and they are telling everybody about the queen's disobedience and the consequences are going to be disastrous. Women are just going to rise up. Wives are going to rebel against their husband. The world is going to fall apart. 
That is impressive exaggeration, is it not? And we see how one sin will lead to another sin, how pride leads to anger, and then into exaggeration, and ultimately into lies, and distorts truth. And they completely over-exaggerated the problem. And at the same time, they're inflating their own importance and they're making the king more dependent upon them, creating this vicious circle of pride that produces anger, that then in turn produces more pride. And we need some way of breaking through this because there is only one solution to these cycles of sin that go on within our lives, and that is Jesus. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's repentance It's a Christ-like humility that admits how foolish we have been, but instead the king follows bad advice. The queen is to be removed. The new queen is to be found somewhere motivated by anger and by revenge. He's seeking to heal his wounded pride, and Vashti is deported. In actual fact, she's probably quite lucky. She could have easily have been executed. The Bible doesn't tell us what happens to Vashti, But many biblical scholars believe that she was later called Amertris, the mother of Artaxerxes, who ruled from 464 to 425, just after Xerxes, during the reign, or during the time, sorry, of of Ezra the prophet. And as queen mother, she actually held a great deal of influence during her son's reign. But what is interesting that Artaxerxes was born in 483 BC, the year of the great banquet described here in Esther chapter 1. So it's very possible that Vashti was pregnant with her son during this feast and actually another very good reason why she would not appear before men. And she had a narrow escape, but the king had not. See, when he sobers up enough to reflect on what he's done, he realizes his loss. He almost admits it in chapter 2, verse 1. But being a very proud man, man, he won't change his mind, and he still doesn't seem to think through what he's doing. So he sends out his messengers throughout the land to declare a royal edict, an edict that is unnecessary, that's unenforceable, that's unchanging, which is really just an outworking of his pride once again. He wants to assert his power. He wants to put fear into women everywhere and to encourage every wife to respect their husband. Of course, it makes no sense. People don't love each other or respect each other simply because of a decree or because of some sort of parliamentary law. That would just be ridiculous. Anyway, some time goes past during which the king once again follows the disastrous combination of pride and bad advice. He goes off to invade Greece and and receives a humiliating defeat. And on his return home, he seeks comfort in satisfying his sensual appetite by searching for a new queen. As he fills his harem with many, many candidates. And the stage is now set for the entrance of two key people in this story. Haman, a man who hated the Jews, and Esther, the woman who would deliver her people. But that's for another week. 
Which leaves us with one question to answer. So what? Why do we need to know about some heathen king who arrogantly reigned over his godless empire? Well, the answer that will become increasingly clear as the story of Esther unfolds is that Xerxes was not ruling the world. He may have thought he was. In fact, other people may have thought he was, but actually God was. And this is foundational to the story of Esther. Everything that Xerxes did was under the sovereign rule and authority of God. So as Xerxes, as Xerxes surveys his empire, he probably would have scarcely noticed the few scattered Jews that were around who had been captives in Babylon before Persia had overthrown the Babylonian empire, but they had not gone unnoticed by God. And God, who is supreme king of all kings, notices his people and cares for them. He knows the trouble that is about to threaten him, sorry, to threaten them. And behind the scenes, he's already moving his players into position. And as hard as it is to understand, even Xerxes' arrogant rivalry and pride is just part of God's far bigger plan. So though God's name is not mentioned anywhere in the book of Esther. And it, listen, it is not mentioned even once. No one can read the book without being conscious of God. God is at work and he will have his way and no one can stop the plans of God. So even though God's name is not mentioned, his presence, he is present and he is active and he's not hiding. He may be hidden, but he's not hiding. This is what Romans 8.28 says. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. Listen, we live in a nation at the moment that is in turmoil with Brexit, with confusion. Nobody seems to know they're listen. God is in control. It's the message of Esther. God is in control. And listen, the implications of this are immense for us because it means that we can trust him without fear, without obedience, without, without, sorry, we can trust him without fear and we can obey him without hesitation. And even when we don't feel his presence, even when he seems to be hidden from us, he is still at work. And I am convinced that there are times when God holds back a sense of his presence to test us, to see how strong our faith really is, to see if we will persist in him. Listen, it's easy to pray, it's easy to worship, it's easy to obey when you feel his presence. It is hard without, but you must keep going. And you must remember that his presence is with you whether you feel him or not. And God is pleased with you. Perhaps God is even more pleased with you when you persist in faith and you rely on him without a sense of his presence. When you continue to wait on God, even when you feel nothing, it honors God and he delights in you. Hebrews 11.6 Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And faith is only faith when you carry on believing without any tangible sense that you have got it right at all. Listen, if you have the evidence that's only natural to want, it wouldn't be faith. 
And this should be such an encouragement to us this morning. God is always with you. We've heard in our worship already, have we not? God is always with you, but is also warning to us as well, because no one can escape the watchful eye and the faithful hand of Almighty God. And one of the big themes of this book of Esther is the providence of God. And as we will see many times, kings and rulers and politicians may issue their unalterable decrees, but God rules and will accomplish his purposes. He is the one who will supply your needs. He gives sustenance and support. He provides, he sustains, he governs this universe, which includes every part of your life and mine. And we still live in a world where man boasts and tries to exert their power and authority. Men and women who want to be king. But there is only one true king. A better king. A greater king. And his name is Jesus. And he reigns forever. He reigns undefeated. In fact, only his kingdom stands firm, invincible, all-powerful. And while others will come and go, he remains unchanged. And the resurrected Jesus reigns in victory over sin, over death, which is why the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is central to our faith, to, to everything that we have, is central to humanity itself. Daniel the prophet In the Old Testament, in Daniel chapter 7, talks about Jesus, prophetically pointing to Jesus. This is how he describes him. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The same thing is picked up in the New Testament in Revelation chapter 19. As John declares, King Jesus, he says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He is a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe drip dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven are following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He threads the... treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has this name written. Listen, do not be in any doubt. There is one name that is above every other name, only one who is Lord over all, and his name is Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ is Lord over all. Listen, He is God most high, possessor of heaven and earth of Genesis. He is the everlasting God of Isaiah. He is majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders of Exodus. He is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the almighty, and the awesome God of Deuteronomy. He is the Holy One in the Psalms. He is worthy to receive glory and honor and power, creator of all things. In him all things exist and were created of revelation. This is our God. And his name is Jesus. He alone is an absolute authority. Prouders, proud boasters will come and they will go, but Jesus remains king over all. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Breath. Good. So, as you read the story of Esther, I hope you will see the sovereignty, the authority, the majesty of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinitarian God, and also how much he cares for you. I hope you see his protection. I hope you see his miraculous provision even when everything seems to be lost. But I also hope you see a much more personal story. A beautiful example of a woman committed to God. A young girl who is used by God to bring salvation to a whole nation. And that you will be reminded that God can use anyone to accomplish his purposes. Because every day is a day of opportunity. And as you apply this to your own life, you will know that God can use you to accomplish his purposes, and to influence others, if only you will commit yourself to him.